Welcome back to Heavy Wireless. My name is Keith Parsons, and today I have with me Jim Molesky from UMass Amherst, and we'll be talking about Wi-Fi and their campus. How are you today, Jim? Very good. Let's go in the Wayback Machine. I heard that UMass Amherst, did I get your name right, was one of the first to have Wi-Fi in residence halls. So tell us how you got started and why you thought wireless was a a good thing to do for your, your students in their residence halls. Yeah, so about 10 years ago, um, we were we did a survey on campus to figure out how the networking was, and at that time, it wasn't that great. We had we got a really poor survey back, and so we realized we had to do something. So we started looking at the buildings, and we had to upgrade the wiring. You know, the university's been around for 160 years, and to upgrade the wiring, we're talking about 30,000. To 100,000 jacks. It was about an $8 million problem. I'm sorry, $80 million problem. Just for the cabling. Just for the cabling. $80 million. So we realized that we probably couldn't afford that and that we ought to look at, you know, other ways of doing this. And so we already had been using wireless. We were using Aruba's wireless and we had quite a bit of success with that. So we actually created a dorm as a pilot to figure out, could we go exclusively wireless in that dorm? And this was around 2009. Again, we did the pilot, came back, got the survey back, and the students absolutely loved the wireless. You know, and this is a time when most of the vendors were coming out with the adapters already built in. You didn't have to, like, put cards put in. Put a little dongle onto your Xbox mm-hmm. so you yep. get on wireless. It, yeah. Well, in the beginning, we did not support gaming, so just to be clear. So it was all about the student experience, but we didn't really support gaming in that in the, in the beginning, the first few years. That was uh, later, later on is when we actually started doing that. So again, the primary driver was cost. You know, we couldn't afford to do 100,000 jacks on the university because it was $80 million. So, we piloted, things went really well, and then we decided, well, let's just deploy across the entire campus. And so we made the decision to actually convert the entire dorm complexes to wireless and remove all of the wired. And that was done, I think we were finished around 2012. And so what was the ratio of access points to dorm rooms? The way we designed it is in a zigzag pattern. So you go down a hallway and you would put one in the first room and then skip that room and put one across. And the reason, the rationale and the reason for that was, is we wanted it to be um, redundant. So if we lost an AP, in theory, the other APs would increase their power to compensate for that hole. Because in a dorm area, it's a living space and you can't necessarily go into someone's living room whenever you want. And so we had a design for redundancy. Well, I'm, I am impressed that your first pass wasn't sticking them in the halls. A, a, a <laughs> oh, my of, God, you don't want to do that. <laughs> a lot of people went through that because it just made sense. And then, then you got, uh, got Well, trapped. the other thing you also have to realize is back then, the APs were designed a little different than they are today's. So a lot of the manufacturers now are designing for horizontal. Back then, it was more three-dimensional. And so our original designs were in three dimensions. So if we zigzagged on the first floor, we would zigzag the opposite on the second floor because we knew we'd have bleed vertically and horizontally. At least now that most of the APs are down tilting, so 
They still cover multiple floors, but not both directions. Not as much. The, we Because we, we use Ekahau for doing our surveys, if you're familiar with that. And we can clearly see that the propagation patterns are much different. So did you start at being around 2010? Do you went straight to 5 gig? We always did. Well, not, not only 5 gig. We, all did, we always did 2.4 and 5. And the reason for that was because of when something would break, you want that further propagation, because as you know, 2.4 will propagate further than 5. Mm -hmm. And so that was all by design. Also, back in those early days, a lot of devices didn't support 5. This was before 5 in a lot of cases. Yeah, it was, your timing was kind of right at that cusp. So as a, as a university, are you required from your administration to support anything that the students bring in, or do you have some level of control over that? We have a level of control. Well, all right, so let me, so we don't control what they bring. I do control what they can get on the network with. So back in the early days, I did not support, again, gaming and you know devices that didn't support 802.1x because it wasn't feasible at that time for us. Well, that's a, that's a good question. What do you do when someone brings in a non.1x device? So today or back then? Oh, let's go with both. So back then, we basically told them that we didn't support gaming and any devices that were not 802.1x compliant. So was that based off of the transport? You didn't want the gaming transport to go, or it was the It was the technology, because the, the gaming console couldn't support 802.1x, and that's all we had turned on. Okay, so after, after the no, right, and I'm sure over the years that pressure built. That's exactly correct. So then you changed to support non.1x. Correct. How do you I would, go about that? I would, I would actually argue that it was pressure, but more it was technology catching up to where we needed to be. So um, let me describe what I'm talking about. Captive portal in its infancy, didn't work very well. And so over time, we were testing it, trying to get it to work right. And then we finally got to a point where I would say that it, it was reliable. And once we got to the point, because we would always be, we were always were looking for ways to support it. But in the early days, we would try and fail. So we always had, well, actually we had pilots from day one. And so we would do it, take a dorm and try to support gaming this way and then try to. So one of the way one of the things we did in the early days was you would call up customer support and you would tell them your gaming console and you would give us the information and we would manually enter it. Well, that wasn't um, something we could support. We found not, out not very scalable. No, it wasn't scalable. And asking people what their Mac address. Exactly. Uh, a seven C was it was it, and they'd say things that you know aren't in hex, or they don't even know what a MAC address is. They give us a serial number of the box or something along those yeah. lines. So, in the end, that didn't work out as well as we would have liked. So we did pivot towards Captive Portal, where they could enter the information in by themselves. And so you have a separate SSID for those that are MAC authenticated. Correct, and we call it UMass devices. And so anything that's in there is just in the MAC table somewhere. That is correct. And that's how we let them on the network currently. So would you use that same technique if you had a guest, say you had some contractor come on site and needed to work and they needed access? No. So how contractors work currently is they ha we have what's called a NENS account, non-employee non student account. And so we create an account for them and then they actually get put into our central systems as a user. 
standard user. And it's just temporary? Yeah, it's depending on who you are. So it could be as short as a day, or it could be as long as six months. You mentioned earlier in the, in the pre-conference, you even use wireless on campus for postal delivery. Correct. So how would that, that postal delivery person, are they more the same kind of contract, but long-term? Well, actually our postal delivery people are actually UMass employees. Um, but let me describe what that process is. So that's, that's actually critical to the university to do business. Uh, if you can imagine, we have about 30,000 people, we're a city, and we have our own postal system at the university. So how it currently works is we have employees who deliver the mail out to the dorms for the students. And you can imagine, you know, if you have 30,000 people, all the mail that's coming in, we had to figure out how to automate that process. And so what they have is they have a scanner that they utilize that's tied into the wireless. So when they go up to a dorm, they can just scan the packages and or the mail and it's, it's all automated. And it's been very successful for the university. The only thing we, do a lot of on wireless is point of sale. Um, we've got a, a, a truck that actually drives around, two of them that drive around campus selling food. That's all tied in with point of sale through the, our internal wireless systems. And uh, that's also, you know, very important to the university. So is that tied like to the student ID so they can go to the cafeteria and buy food or they can buy it from the truck? They actually have what we call a UMass card. It, you know, it's a UMass card. It's like a credit card, and so you can actually just swipe it at a point-of-sale system, and it'll actually charge through the system back to, or if you have a credit card, it'll do the same thing. Impressive. So uh, what if you're a non-parent a who comes on campus for a, a tour? What, how do you handle those kind of guests? So how that would work is currently the student would then get into their what we call Spire, and that is our account management system, and they would just create a temporary account for their parents or their spouse or their friends. It could be a friend from another school. However, if it's a friend from another school, we do we are set up to run Edgerome, so it does it automatically affiliates through that. So some universities I've talked with, some Edu, have moved almost exclusively to Edgerome. How do you treat Edgerome within your school? So we are primarily Edgerome, but we do have captive portal for non for non Edgerome type of people. So you would log in to the captive portal with the credentials that were created by a sponsor. So we are we require everyone to be at least in our systems. Good, but we are going to be changing that just to be clear. And what are you moving to? Eventually, I want to set up. So we run ClearPass currently right now, and I want to start utilizing the ClearPass so that it's a captive portal where they can enter in their own credentials and then use this like their cell phone or something to validate those credentials. That's eventually where we want to go. And how many students do you have on campus? Around 28,000. So I'm guessing during the day your captive portal gets hit pretty hard. I mean, no, sorry, your ClearPass. Correct. We have multiple ClearPass servers. As, as students move from dorm to classroom to cafeteria, that's a lot of authentication. Absolutely. And, and we have multiple ClearPass servers, but we have, I think, currently about 12 LDAP servers to keep up with the demand. And you can imagine that when you have 30,000 people all getting out of class at the exact same time and going to a different building on campus because we have over 300 buildings, you can imagine the amount of traffic that creates.
from an IP address, DHCP, DNS, authentication, really. We're an Aruba shop and we're a mist shop. So we're, we're about 30% uh, mist right now. We're converting more to mist, but the, right now we're mostly Aruba. And so we have multiple controllers. And so when you go back to the controller, depending on where you are, we try to take the APs in a building and put them on a controller, but you may walk by another building that's on another controller. So you can imagine what that's gonna create for a storm. <laughs> yeah, a lot. So you started to move over to mist. What were the reasons behind that? The biggest one or two reasons I would say that we decided to go to Mist. So we, so I, actually, why don't I tell you the whole adventure how we okay. got here? Great, <laughs> if you're okay with that. Sure. So again, we've been a Aruba shop for before I started working at the university. So at least 16, 17, 18 years. The product has worked really well for us. Honestly, why did I look at going to Mist? I didn't actually go looking at Mist. What we were trying to do is, because we are a university, we don't have endless resources on faculty, I mean, on staff to support. I have one really, really good wireless engineer that knows Aruba as good or better than any of the, the Aruba engineers, but I have the one guy. I was looking for a way to simplify our environment. And what do I mean by that? I only had the one high-level engineer, but I'm trying to look at the future and is there a different way that we can operate operationally on the wireless to simplify it? In other words, push simple tasks down to lower level people so I don't have to hire more high level engineers. And so we started looking at, we looked at Cisco, we looked at Aruba, we looked at MIST, and we looked at two others. So a total of four companies and we whittled it down to two that could potentially do it. So we looked at Aruba and we looked at MIST. And we actually did a bake-off. And so we used my administration building as the bake-off. We actually put in two APs, one Aruba and one AP, about four inches from each other. And we tied them back to the same exact switch. And we did the whole building this way. So, oh, so you had a total overlay. Total overlay for the whole building to do this test. And then what we would actually do is toggle the ports on the switch and go go through different scenarios to see how things would work. And the the goal was, you know, when we looked at this is should we, can we reduce cost? Can we reduce operational ex, you know expense and oper, how will it do what we want it to do? And so that was the three goals that we looked at. And when we went through this, we just toggled them back and forth, did different things. And frankly, both companies performed well. I think the biggest reason we decided to switch was due to the simplicity of MIST over Aruba. Aruba- From the, the end user, the end users didn't know. The end users, so they, they wouldn't have complained and said, oh, no, we're on the... You know, they don't even know what, you yeah. know, if, if, if I'm doing my job correctly, they have no idea what I'm doing, nor do they care. They, this they, has to work, yeah. They, they look at the network as electricity coming out of the wall. They don't, you don't need to know where that electricity came from. You just need to know when you plug your cord in, you're going to get electricity out. So your success on one versus the other wasn't tied to whether or not the end users complained. What was you of those three things you mentioned? How how did you tell the difference between? I would the two? say the number one. Th so I'll give you an example. That one of the big things is when we install Aruba currently, the current process at UMass is that we get a bunch of APs, we then 
have my high-level engineer program the controller, get everything all put together, then we go out and deploy them, and then the engineer then has to go into the controllers and make sure everything's working. And this takes about two to three weeks from our process. This is a UMass-specific process. The same thing with Juniper Mist takes us uh, about 45 minutes. And the big difference is, is that, and also I'm having students do the installations where previously I needed full-time staff. So, And I'm pretty sure you have a lot of those available. Students, exactly. You know, I'll give you an example. And they're a little cheaper. Yeah, a lot cheaper. But also, to your point, I can put more boots on the ground. So this summer we're planning on deploying about 3,000 APs with student labor completely. And with the, the big difference for us is when we went to install the Aruba, they, their new versions have something similar where they have a mobile app. But back a year ago, in our opinion, it wasn't as good as the MIST AP app. And so we actually have students that we give them a cell phone. They, they take a, the AP. They take a picture of the AP. They go plug it in, and they're done. They, we actually installed one dorm in less than one day. And previously, that dorm took us, I think it was close to four weeks to install. And that's just rip and replace? Rip and replace. No, just pull off the old AP, Correct. put the new AP on, it phones home and, phone, well, phones out to the cloud. Correct. Phones out to the cloud, but because of the way the AI and everything automatically configures it, it makes the installation that much easier. But then on the operational standpoint, this was, so the, the installation was, high on our list and also operational was very high on the list. So I'll give you an example. One of the tests we did, we put two AP, again, we had the two AP side by side. One of the things I did was we took the AP and let it hang down on an angle because this is a real world scenario. We've had this, we have students and, and so it's misaligned and I wanted to see would the mist pick up that that because again we did the whole building so they're all talking to each other so technically in, in theory when you take that ap down and hang it on its side it's no longer aligned correctly power levels should change and i should get someone should be poking me say hey there's a problem over here we got a notified by mist but we didn't get notified by aruba and that was one of the big things there's a there's other things that we found that and it was more of the we found that Again, this is a year ago, year and a half ago, we found that the AI in MIST was more mature is the way I would describe it. Have you noticed a difference in the amount of time it takes to resolve a troubleshooting problem? Absolutely, and I will also, so I have statistics that we've shown. Actually, I pulled a, so we use ServiceNow for our ticketing system, yeah. Yeah. and I looked at a trend for the last uh, eight years, and it was, I picked a dorm, I actually picked two dorms and I picked a, a administration building. And the two dorms were, you don't need to know the names, but basically what we were seeing is, is on average about 100 to 200 tickets per dorm on average per semester. That was on the old legacy Aruba. The, so again, it's apples and oranges to some degree. So just to be clear on that. We're currently, those same two dorms, one dorm had one ticket and the other one had, I think, three off the top of my head. So we went from 100 to so, one or so two. So 99% drop. Pretty much. Yeah. And in the administration building, we went from uh, 
don't, I think the number was around 120 tickets down to 10. And those 10, of the 10, I believe all of them, but I can't, I don't want to say for sure, but I think all of them was just configuration errors. My administration people just weren't clicking the right buttons. What makes you think you could get, I mean, that's, that's either 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 better right. drop in tickets. How do you think MIST was able to do that? It's the AI. So the way I like to describe it is um, I have a great engineer, knows more than most Aruba high-level engineers, but he works 40 hours a week. AI works 7 by 24, 365 days a year, never stops. Always looking for abnormalities, always looking for issues, always looking for things. And so we would get emails of things that, I'll give you an example. We had a DHCP error that was, we didn't know what was going on, had no idea. Mist was poking us, saying, ding, 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 look over here. There's a bunch of people not getting the right IP, you know, right IP address. We never knew. And that had been going on for years. It wasn't until we actually installed the mist and started looking at the uh, the console that we actually had configuration issues in our infrastructure that wasn't wireless related. However, if you're the end user, you're you're every once in a while getting an IP address that wasn't going to work. And of course, you're going to call. Oh, Wi-Fi, exactly. Wi-Fi sucks. But we never got that until we had the AI. Again, it's apples and oranges. I know Aruba also has something similar to that. But again, you gotta, I was comparing older technology to newer technology. And, and do you think Aruba would have the, that same AI built in? Do you plan on doing another head-to-head test? Not for five more years. So right now we're going to be switching over to MIST. That's our plan. Oh, good. Another question that has to do with, I uh, just wanted to circle back. You'd mentioned some $80 million worth of cabling. Did you ever run a test to find out how much dark copper you had, unused copper? All of our unused copper, no. So our plant, for the, a lot of our plant was installed in the late 80s, early 90s. So it's not category rated at all in the dorms oh, anyway. Oh, like even pre-CAT 3? It's before CAT 3. So we're talking, it was actually six pair, not four pair, to put in perspective. And that was run two to four co- cables per per dorm, so uh, per dorm room, I should say. So I, I don't even know how many tons of that <laughs> cable is out there right it's, now. It's just in the walls and no one's using it. Correct. We just we just kind of abandoned it. The, our, what we do now is is when they go in and renovate, we rip it out. But to go in there and take it out right now, is, is it's just not cost effective. Yeah, you wouldn't take plumbing out either. Yeah, you have to remember the, the the university's been around for 160 years, and our oldest building, I think, was built in 1728. So it's not easy to do work in those older buildings. Do you run across the issues of having a historical building and you can't touch anything? Absolutely. Yeah, like we have a couple where there's beautiful oak and cherry molding. Can't go near that because it's historical value. So, and you can't put raceway on there, so you have to get very creative in how you do things. So again, running wires at the campus are not straightforward. So wireless is a savior to us in some respects because instead of having to run a a pair of wires to every single wall, I put an AP up for every other room, give or take, depending on density issues and things along those lines. Have you, have you found any requirement 
to not do a rip and replace when you're upgrading, that you needed to do a redesign? So that's a good question. So let me go into that. That, that's an, that was actually another reason we actually chose Mist over Aruba was, again, to my prior conversation, we used Ekahau. With the Mist AI and the Mist product, we put our actual floor plans in there and it, it's almost as good uh, as the uh, Ekahau. So when we put them in, we can actually see where, because the way they talk to each other, we can actually see where we have coverage holes. To answer your question, yes, we've had to add some APs, but the newer modern APs are actually stronger and actually broadcast further from what we've seen. About 20% more is what we've seen. So after you put in a missed solution, one of the things they can report is we have a coverage hole. And we've had a bunch a, a of those. Self-reporting. And we've and that's actually really funny because one of our dorm complexes, we never for whatever reason with Ekahau, we never saw several coverage holes. But yeah, you know, when we put the mist in, it actually popped right up. But and then what we were able to do is we were able to see the coverage hole, but then mysteriously the coverage hole started to fill in over time because what was happening was the AI was talking to the different APs and they were adjusting themselves. So a lot of our coverage holes that we had disappeared. Because it self-healed. Self-healed. And Aruba's got ARM, which does something similar, Mm -hmm. but this was at a different level that we've never seen before. Well, I think part of that is because MIST, not just the AI, but their algorithms for setting those things use client feedback. So if they make a change and the clients don't like it, that was they one take of our back. that was one of my our criteria actually because you just brought up a really good point of why we had issues in uh, a lot of our classrooms because we would have a cl- big we have big classrooms in some cases in lecture halls and we would have APs in there but you would have sometimes one AP with a hundred people on it and you'd have another one with thirty on it. And we would have to manually balance the APs by adjusting the power level. Now it's all automatic. And then what happens is, what we've seen is, is you look at those classrooms and those APs are almost evenly matched. It's amazing. And we never had that ability before. So previously we were, how would you say, using buckshot to try and fix the problem. <laughs> and now what's happening is, is with the intelligence, we no longer have to do that. Just a, a wild guess. If you hadn't used the AI, how many more full-time staff would you need? It's actually easy, because <laughs> I can tell you for sure. Okay. Um, so we used to have, uh, well, we still have the staff, but I, I had one engineer and a, about a team of four to five people continuously working on wireless. Now we have the one engineer who's doing the still still running my Aruba back back infrastructure, but it's all lower level individuals running all of Mist AI, and eventually it'll be majoritarily all operationally people. So we can transfer that work over to actually doing engineering. So I want them to be working on MX routing. I want them to be working on. Our, we have a big Sienna deployment. I need them to be doing, you know, higher level things, I guess is the way to describe it. So what MIST has allowed me to do is actually put the work where it needs to be. 
put the experience, the skills where they solve right. real world problems, not just little stuff. Exactly. And but to answer your question, I have one guy primarily doing the wireless now, and he's a manager, and he just tells the. Stu- it's actually students doing it. Have you had any students who had this experience and then move on and want to stay in wireless? Um, actually, my niece is now working for Juniper. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah, she was a student worker. She actually is one of them that deployed uh, close to 200 APs in one of our dorm complexes. Um, she was actually writing Ansible scripts and doing things like that, and we really wanted to keep her, but Juniper stole her. <laughs> <laughs> well, final question. This has to do about EduRome and the future. EduRoam, just to, to recap, is a SSID that's used in campuses throughout the world. If you have a .1x at one campus, you log in and the credentials get sent over to your campus and you're authenticated. One of the issues with EduRoam is, by requirement, there's only one SSID. So this, I guess, is a multi-part question. One, do you run EduRoam on 2.4 or 5 only? Just probably a quick question. But the, the big one is, what are your plans for moving to 6 gig with EduRoam? So EduRome is a complicated ammo, like you had said. But I would also say in educa- you know, higher education, it's a requirement. Because we have researchers coming from Harvard, MIT, BU, all over the world, and they need to be able to connect to the network. So, And it is a, a big load. You wouldn't have to make your own credentials for all of them. You, or you, the, the contractors. To your point, that, yeah. so when, when someone comes from MIT or Harvard, let's just pick Harvard. They come onto our campus, they use their Harvard credentials, and it automatically goes back to Harvard's authentication systems and validates who they are. It actually goes to Jerome, but then at Harvard. But either way, so we're offloading all of that work. Plus, the end user gets a better experience. That's really what the reason for it is. Jerome has a couple... I don't want to call them issues, but they have some deficiencies, I would say. And one of them being that you have to be part of an educational institution. You have to be a higher ed. We're a major public university. A large part of our population isn't affiliated with an education institution. For example, I have Johnson Controls on campus. I have all these different companies on campus supporting the campus, but they may need access to certain things. So Edgerome can't help me there. So in our current setup where we have a captive portal and someone has to sponsor them, it creates or generates a lot of work. And it also slows down the process for that individual getting on our network. So we're looking at two ways to solve this problem. One is switching to something called AnyRoam. Well, actually, let me back that up. We're not going to switch. We're going to continue to offer in Edgerome. In addition to Edgerome. Correct. Yeah. We will do, offer in addition to Edgerome, AnyRome which is more of a generic Edgerome. So people can actually go in and actually register with any Rome and start getting on our network. The other thing we're looking at is, you know, making a public captive portal instead of having to require credentials. So what I mean by that is, is you would log into our ClearPass servers and then it would automatically phone your cell phone to validate your credentials and then let you on the network. So that, 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 that does a lot of things. It, expedites people getting on the network because we are a public institution but the the big win for this is it takes pressure off of my help desk 
because right now all that traffic has to get funneled to them and then they have to create accounts and go through a whole bunch of process to make this work. And really all you're after is you just need some, you just need to know who they are. I need to know who they are because of compliancy. It's that simple. So it's not really that, oh no, they're going to be using my bandwidth. You just have to meet compliance requirements. We're a public institution, so they can use, you know, during COVID, we actually set up a bunch of public APs out by our stadium, and we actually did it in four different locations on campus so that people could come to campus who needed to get to the internet and because, the, you know, other things, other means were down. So we, we offered that as a service, and we opened it up to be completely public, so you didn't need anything on those, but we shut those down since. <laughs> yeah, we, we've all adjusted because of, of COVID. During COVID, was the campus open and still had students there? Or It depended. So actually, if I showed you the graph that I was talking about, the help desk requests, so we were straight, 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 and then for about a year, we had nobody on campus. So it went down to zero, and then it went back up again. So, but there was a large, there was a large per, per, per portion of the campus that was open during COVID, depending on where you were and things along those lines. What's next for wireless at UMass? I think MSPK is the next thing we're going to be looking at, is how do we simplify non-8021X devices? So a student in a dorm could set up his own little Correct. baby network that says, this right. is just for me and my toys. Correct, because still, there's still overhead, and it's complicated right now. Uh, you have, not complicated from a technology point of view, but from a process point of view. And so I think from, a, I always like to put myself in the customer's point of view. And from a customer's point of view right now, it's simple, not very simple to do what they need to do. So I think this is a newer a technology that could help us achieve simplicity for the end user. Because again, going all the way back to, I like to look at the network as a utility. You don't have to think about plugging your electrical cord into the wall. You just do. The network should be the same way. You shouldn't have to think about what do I have to do to get on this network. It should just automatically work. If I'm doing my job, it's fully automated, and people don't know my cell phone number, and they don't need to call me because something's not working. And I, I, I've had a thought about captive portals for years. If you're at a shopping mall and you need to go to the bathroom, if you needed to talk to someone first to say, how do I open the door? Do I need a code? Do you have to talk to my cell phone to allow? It's like, I just need to go to the bathroom. Exactly. So the analogy is very good because that's exactly what's going on right now. And we're making it overly complicated for them to do their job. But because of compliancy, DMCA and other things, I have to be able to, I have accountability. I have to find out who's doing what, when and where. Well, I sure appreciate your time today. Is there a place, if anyone wanted to follow up and check with you, they could follow up? Is there a website or? We have the university website, umass.edu, and then uh, I'm in an IT. So there, it's just umass.edu slash IT. Sounds great. Well, Jim, thanks for your time today.